Hello everyone, welcome back to Return to Reason. Hope you're having a good weekend. Started a little little late tonight, but that's okay. Had a bit of a bit of a rough weekend, though it ended well. We'll get to that here in a second. You're gonna wanna if you're listening to this later, you're gonna wanna skip. I'm gonna talk about football for a few minutes here. So you can skip ahead to get to the stuff that's not that. Uh, but the weekend started out a little rough. I was sick at the end of last week, going into the weekend. I, we got it, I, actually, so my wife was sick, I was sick, and our seven-month-old was sick. We got it from her. We don't know how she got it, but, you know, I've never <laughs> never seen, like, a sick baby this before, but just covered in snot, and my wife took a picture. She had, like, an actual snot bubble in her nose. It was super funny. So she got us sick, and then just as I was starting to feel a little better last night, I had a bowl of cereal before bed, and I went to, like, drink the milk, and I had it close to my face for the first time, and I'm like, oh my god, it was super sour milk, and I thought the cereal tasted a little weird, but I just didn't notice it, because I was crazy tired, and uh, so yeah, I was, like, doubled over on the couch in the fetal position, eating, like, leftover candy canes from Christmas, <laughs> trying to get the taste out of my mouth. But I'm feeling better now. I'm I'm good now. And whatever quality I was feeling physically in my being, from being over being sick, from, you know, getting past drinking sour milk, which actually was before it even expired, so I don't know what was going on there. Anyway, that that same nourishment has reached my soul from the Chiefs game against the Houston Texans. I don't know if you watched this game, but at the very beginning of it, they were Chiefs were down twenty four to zero. They were playing so bad. I actually had to like go upstairs. We were watching a friend's house, and after the like the last field goal that Houston scored that made the game twenty four zero, I like walked upstairs and was just sitting, just looking down at the floor. It was dark, and I'm just calming down. I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is. I can feel my blood pressure spike, and then I go down, and then the Chiefs ended up pulling it out. I mean, it was crazy. He scored like four touchdowns in the second quarter and then came back and, I mean, they were winning going into halftime. I think it was 28 to 24 and then ended up winning 51 to 31. It was an absolutely insane game. And the and Tennessee beat the Ravens uh, the day before. And so the uh, Titans are coming to Arrowhead to play the Chiefs next weekend. It'll be a crazy good game. Ryan Tannehill's been on fire. So anyway, that, needless to say, you know, I had the physical illness and wasn't feeling good, and then I was really just kind of down in the dumps after watching the first part of that Chiefs game, and now all is well in, in the universe, at least for for the moment, for the time being. So, at least until I watch the Democrat debate on Tuesday, then of course everything will go back to being a dumpster fire. But anyway, all that to say, I hope your weekend's going well, hope everything's going good we got a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, I'm going to give some brief updates on the Golden Globes and this article I read on NBC about how this new strategy California is taking to fight homelessness. It's not really a new strategy. We'll briefly touch on impeachment. And then the main things I want to talk about is the Democratic primaries and this super fascinating article. They're contrasting these two articles that I read that really kind of talk about the big picture issues that are going to be going on with the Democratic primaries. And then we'll close it out by talking about the fallout from Iran, which was, although it was like a week ago, it's actually been approximately 4 million years. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of stuff has happened. So anyway, the Golden Globes, one of the things I talked about last week was I was kind of excited about how Dave Chappelle um, 
was he got the Mark Twain Award for comedy. It's an annual award. He received that this week. I couldn't find a, a, a whole thing about it on PBS's YouTube channel or anything, but I'll put a clip to that. So I was excited about Dave Chappelle, even though he caught a lot of crap, still being honored at this prestigious award for humor. And then that Ricky Gervais was still going to be hosting the Golden Globes, which was last Sunday, even though he's gotten a lot of crap on Twitter. And he came out and was like, yeah, F this. I don't want to do this anymore, so let's just burn the whole thing down. Roasted Hollywood. And I read a brief snippet of it last week. And honestly, what was pretty crazy about it is that he was largely praised for it afterwards. I was interested to see, like, okay, how many you know, think pieces in Vice or Vox or whatever are going to be posted about it afterwards. And they were pretty minimal, to be honest. And, you know, even though he got out there and said, don't do your political thing, no one cares about your politics, just accept your award and get off there. And yeah, there were still a lot of celebrities that got up and did that. Sasha Baron Cohen did. He was talking about how Facebook supports Nazis, you know, whatever. Patricia Arquette, Michelle Williams, others, they still did their thing. But I think Ricky Gervais still came out on top. And what's funny is that they just recently announced, I think it was just yesterday, they said that Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are going to be hosting the Golden Globes next year. So, I mean, mission accomplished for him. He's like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. And it feels like a big win all around. So he got to roast Hollywood. He was largely praised for it. On Twitter, he did kept doing his thing. He's like, look, I'm. this is all in good fun. Take it or leave it, whatever. And... Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are hilarious, so I think they'll do a good job next year. Not that I'll watch it, but I'll watch highlights, you know? So I think it was a win for everyone generally. I think it is a win for everyone that doesn't like cancel culture, everyone that's opposed to, you know, kind of the censorious nature, and especially the grandstanding that a lot of people in Hollywood do, which is what he called out. And I think it's a win for us because I think we're still going to have hilarious hosts for the Golden Globes so we can watch clips of next year because, again, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are awesome. So we'll see how that goes. So, but all in all, if you haven't, by the way, if you haven't watched like Ricky Gervais's whole like eight minute opening, it's super funny. You can find it on YouTube. I would highly recommend it. It is hilarious stuff. So, all right, that's, that's all of that. So there was this thing I wasn't, I had no intention of including this, but I saw this news article from NBC that I just had to talk about. It popped up on my phone today and I was like, oh my gosh. And since I've talked about the homeless crisis in California before, and this article touches on that. I was like, okay, I have to at least mention it. So there was this article on NBC News that talked about how Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, he's got this brand new amazing strategy to fight homelessness in California. All right, you ready for it? It's brand new, never been tried before. Throw money at it. Wow, amazing stuff. So here's, here's from NBC News. So he's trying to get uh, California state lawmakers to funnel $1.4 billion dollars into more programs to alleviate homelessness. I'm sure it'll work out great. So here's the quote from NBC's article. The proposal was met with measured enthusiasm from advocates and officials who said they were grateful for the additional resources, but acknowledged it would not be enough to get the 151,000 homeless individuals in California off the streets. 151,000, that's crazy. Anyway, quote, it covers the major direct issues related to homelessness, shelter, housing, social services, said... Nan Roman, president and CEO of National Alliance to End Homelessness based in Washington, D.C. Whether it's the right amount of money, I can't say, but it seems like it's hitting the right things. I don't notice anything in there about, you know, arresting people or outlawing crapping on the streets, but I guess those aren't big issues in their mind. Solving homelessness is the top priority for 
Angelinos and people across California, and our state budget ought to reflect that urgency, Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti said in response to Newsom's announcement. Los Angeles County experienced a 12% increase in homelessness over the same period, putting the population at around 59,000. Although Garcetti believes we always need more, he is grateful for the possibility that additional money will be set aside to battle the epidemic, spokesman said. Now, one thing NBC doesn't talk about in this article is the fact that that 12% increase that Los Angeles saw in homelessness that brought the population up to 59,000, that same year, Eric Garcetti and the city of Los Angeles spent $619 million to end homelessness with the same types of programs that Gavin Newsom is proposing for all of California, and it went up by 12%. So, of course, they're not going to mention that, but I just think it's hilarious. You know, it's it's like, what's the definition of insanity again? Oh, yeah, trying the same thing and expecting different results. So, one thing to pay attention to, assuming we still even have a country next year at this time, is what the population of homeless people will be in California after they've spent even more money on it on this issue. You know, I was doing the math and if they, if you were to take the 1.4 billion that Garcetti, or not that Garcetti, but that Newsom is asking for, that they're going to get and add that to, let's say that uh, Los Angeles spends the same amount they did in 2018 on homelessness, it'll end up equating to about $20,000 per person uh, in Los Angeles alone in terms of how much money that they would get if they were just to hand them money. I mean, that's like, that is... Almost twice as much as what, uh, what's the name? Um, drawing a blank on uh, the Democrat candidate, UBI. Andrew Yang. Oh my gosh, the guy's the same name as me. Why would I draw a blank on that? Did I mention it's been a long day? Anyway, but yeah, that, that's the same, that's, the, that's, or that's twice as much as what they would get under UBI, basically. And that's what California is wanting to spend on, you know, to end homelessness. So anyway, we'll see what the homeless population is this time next year. Uh, my guess is more, just saying, just if I was going to say higher, lower, you know, what do you think? It's about the same. Yeah, it's going to be more. It's going to be more because they're trying the same things that didn't work and led to an increase in uh, in the population. It has been leading to an increase in the population uh, year after year. So anyway, okay, so we'll talk. Th- th- that's enough about that. I just thought it was interesting that Gavin Newsom, this is a step in the right direction. Anyway. So we're going to talk about the Democratic debates, and you know I'll briefly touch on where the candidates are at and who's going to be there, but I really want to talk about this main issue that these two articles really highlight that are from the past week in terms of what the real big deal is in the Democratic Party right now. So here's who's going to be in the debates. It's the freaking seventh debate. It's on Tuesday. Oh my gosh, I just got to pit my stomach even thinking about it. There's another one of these things, but I will watch it so you don't have to. Anyway. So it's going to be Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and then Tom Steyer just barely snuck in there. Again, I know most of you are like, who's Tom Steyer? Exactly. He doesn't matter. Klobuchar might not matter depending on how she does in the Iowa caucuses. But anyway, four of those people who are in there are almost in a dead heat in Iowa, which is on in February 3rd. That's the first caucus to, to see you know kind of where this thing is heading. And that's Biden, Warren, Sanders, and Buttigieg. So the debates are coming up. The, the numbers right now, Elizabeth Warren, her, her numbers continue to go down. She just got endorsed by Julian Castro, and her numbers went down again afterwards. Like, no one cares. Uh, but anyway, one thing that's fascinating is there was a thing that came out recently about how, I guess, Bernie Sanders supporters were going, they had some literature 
where they're going out and saying that if, if they had to talk to Elizabeth Warren supporters to say, no, she's actually a candidate for the establishment. She's a candidate for elites. And Elizabeth Warren found out about it. And she said it was, quote, disappointing that Sanders supporters were out there trashing her. And, you know, the, the reality is, is that Bernie Sanders is right whenever he says that. You know, Elizabeth Warren just took his policies over, but she's kind of an imposter here. You know, Bernie Sanders is the true believer, and he he knows that. And so he's not going to say anything about her overtly. I think that's to his detriment. That's why, one of the things that hurt him in 2016 against Hillary. But any, either way, that's neither here nor there. But there's this rift between Warren supporters and Sanders supporters where Sanders is principled enough that he's not going to attack her directly. But whenever his supporters say, yeah, no, she is a candidate for elites, they're not wrong. I mean, she was having the same kind of fundraisers that she was criticizing Pete Buttigieg for at the last debate during her 2018 Senate run. It's only up until about, you know, three and a half minutes ago that she changed that because she knows that it's politically popular with the types of voters that she wants to appeal to. So either way, so there's a rift between Sanders and Warren supporters there, and that kind of helps shade a little bit of the rift that's going to, we're going to hopefully see going into this debate on Tuesday, but the, that is really the big deal debate in the Democratic Party right now. So here's an article from the Daily Beast that I kind of want to briefly mention, and then we'll get into the real meat of it. And this article was about how Obama land supporters hate Bernie Sanders. Uh, so this kind of shades a little bit of what we're going to be talking about. Quote, if you read between the lines of what Sanders folks are saying about the rationale of his candidacy, it's based on their belief that Barack Obama was not progressive. One former senior Obama campaign staffer told the Daily Beast. There is a fundamental flaw in the Sanders candidacy relative to the Obama coalition, and it's because they've continually undermined President Obama. Privately, Obama reportedly acknowledged problems with Sanders' vision, vision for the country. In November, Politico reported that the former president once said that if it looked like the senator, talking about Sanders, were close to winning the nomination, he would speak up in some capacity to help that, or to stop that from happening. End quote. Now, Obama went on to say publicly, like, look, I would support whoever the candidate is, but th that's a real thing, that there's this rift where there's these people in Obama land, which you could say represents kind of where the establishment Democrats are now. That would have been considered the more radical wing of the party in 2008, whenever he was elected, but that's kind of where the establishment is now. And the people on the progressive side of Bernie Sanders, and so notice that they say that Obama has acknowledged Sanders' problem or Sanders' vision for the country being a problem. So think about that word vision. How I've talked about this in the past of there is a fundamental difference of visions happening in the Democratic Party right now. And so whether it's this thing between Warren and Bernie Sanders or Obama and Bernie Sanders or this AOC and Joe Biden thing we're about to get into, this is the real problem is that the left is split in a real and substantive way that some of them are starting to acknowledge, but there's a lot of them that are slow to wake up to it. And at the end, you know, this is kind of a, a tug of war that really only one side is going to end up coming out on top. So I want to contrast these two articles. One of them is from The Hill and the other one's from this publication called J Jacobin, but we'll get into that here in a minute, that talks, that underlines the, the main issue here and how there are some that are just totally in denial about it and some that are at least being honest about it. So this is the piece from The Hill. Uh, and it's, it's about this issue, but how the Democratic conundrum is, build a coalition, or coalition, or do they want to have a movement? Um, and I think this guy is way off on his analysis, um, but we'll get into that here in a second. So, quote, 
The division in the Democratic Party today isn't so much about ideology. It's more about strategy. Should the party be a coalition or movement? So that, that main premise there is, is where I think this guy is so far off that he's just deluded in that assessment. But anyway, what's the difference? A coalition brings together voters with diverse interests who agree on one thing. President Trump has to go. There's just one test. If you support the party's candidate for whatever reason, you're one of us. No further questions. Supporters of a movement are expected to agree on everything. For the conservative movement, that means the entire conservative agenda, from taxes to abortion to immigration to climate change. Disagreement on anything, and you can be declared a heretic and expelled from the movement. The Democratic coalition can include liberals who despise Trump's policies. It can include ordinary voters who are offended by Trump's behavior. It can include conservatives who believe Trump has betrayed the conservative cause. It can include voters of all persuasions who object to Trump's governing by deliberately dividing the country. Now, that's how it concludes. I think this guy is completely out of his mind whenever he says that this idea that there is only a movement on the uh, on the conservative side and not on the left and how, oh, there is, you know, I love this quote here. He says, if you disagree on anything, you're declared a heretic and expelled from the movement. Like if you had to say which side of the political spectrum right now that there is this notion of these purity tests, right? What has Pete Buttigieg talked about? What has Obama talked about of these purity tests? What side is it on? What's the issue in the, the rift in the Democratic Party between you know the progressives, the Bernie Sanders wing, and the more moderates, the, uh, the, the centrists, the establishment Democrats? And so for him to say that this is something that is exclusive to the right or unique to the right, I think is absurd. Now, one thing I will say is that does exist to some degree on the right. I found out about this a couple months ago. I didn't really know much about the alt-right presence on the internet. And I had one day where I managed to piss off socialists on the left and these alt-right dudes. All of a sudden I had these guys with frog avatars, you know, piling on me on Twitter because I just read a tweet that was overtly racist. And I'm like, this is garbage. And then all these groiper alt-right dudes are piling on to me. And I'm like, what is this? And so, yeah, there's this America first, these, you know, Nick Fuentes, these trolls, that are basically, you know, they say America first, but they're a bunch of white nationalists. They go and disrupt, like, Turning Point USA events and stuff like that. So there is this group on the right that does have that kind of purity test, although I, the word purity is something that I would use very loosely there, where they say you have to check every box. But they have no mainstream presence whatsoever. That's why they don't like when someone like Peter Thiel gets up on the stage at R- the RNC in 2016, because he's a gay dude. But he's up there endorsing President Trump. And so there, that is on the right, but it's not a mainstream presence. But however, on the left, there is a mainstream presence presence of this coalition of progressives that says you have to check every box. I mean, Bernie Sanders himself got in trouble with his own base because he said we have to allow room for pro-life Democrats. And there was a bunch of people on the left who were super pissed at him for saying that. So and whether it's that or Pete Buttigieg saying there's purity tests when, you know, come, when it comes to fundraising or Obama saying we can't have these purity tests. Like that is the main issue on the left. And for there, there's still Democrats like the one who wrote this in the Hill who are absolutely delusional about that. And the longer it takes for them to wake up, I think the slower they are going to be to re- to realize that only one party or one group is going to come out on top here. So so that's one side. There's the, the Democrats who still think, oh, no, th- this is an ideo- ideology thing. 
It's just about opposing Trump and his agenda, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's this other article that came out. There's this publication called Jacobin. It's a socialist publication that's a pretty big one. It gets something like 2 million views every single day. Uh, so it's a, it's, a big, it's a big publication. I think it was every day. It might have been every week, something like that. But either way, they've got props from Noam Chomsky, other groups in the socialist, democratic socialist movement. So these guys are a, a very outspoken and influential part of the socialist movement in the United States. And they wrote a piece covering this kind of comment that AOC said. I think she kind of just let it slip, to be honest, um, that kind of got her into trouble. But they wrote an article about this that I think is at least honest about where the Democratic Party is right now. And so, and listen to some of the rhetoric here and see if it sounds familiar because it's kind of what is the stuff that I've been saying for a little while now. So anyway, quote, in a story released yesterday, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said she and Joe Biden would not be in the same party in a different country. Centrists went to war, but she's right. Fighters for the working class like AOC and Bernie Sanders aren't on the same team as defenders of Wall Street and war like Biden. AOC is right. She, Bernie Sanders, and the millions of working class people ready to fight for a political revolution don't belong in the same party as Joe Biden. The fact that they nevertheless are all Democrats is one of the most frustrating facts of American politics. In a recent interview with New York Magazine, AOC seemed to indicate that the thought of a Joe Biden presidency did not inspire her, to put it politely. AOC groaned, according to the article, and then confessed, quote, Oh God. In any other country, Joe Biden and I would not be in the same party, but in America, we are. End quote. Unsurprisingly, Ocasio-Cortez comments are making the rounds. Ben McAdams, the Democratic representative for Utah's 4th Congressional District, pounced on AOC for supposedly forgetting that his Democrats were all on the same team. Fred Gutenberg, a prominent gun safety advocate, called her points disturbing and wrong. And many random liberal Twitter users expressed some version of, why don't you join another party then? But are we really on the same team? Listen to this. The political distance between AOC and Bernie Sanders on the one hand and Joe Biden on the other is stunning. They're not on the same team when it comes to their vision for America. And thank God for that. And he goes on to explain why that is. But then he ends the article like this. Quote, regardless of where change comes from, AOC is undeniably correct that the current party system in the United States is absurd and a travesty for democracy. She and Biden don't belong in the same party. No party is big enough for the both of them. That is stunning. I'm going to read that other part again because this is exactly what I've been saying. The political distance between AOC and Bernie Sanders on the one hand and Joe Biden on the other is stunning. They're not on the same team when it comes to their vision for America. And thank God for that. What have I been saying? That Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi have more in common with Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell than they do with AOC and Bernie Sanders. That's just true on a policy level. And here is this piece in Jacobin, this big socialist publication. They're saying the same thing. That is basically the exact same words that I've been using for months. And they're being honest about it. This is the issue from the horse's mouth. You know, what's fascinating is that whenever AOC had to kind of address this thing because people were pissed at her on Twitter, like what this, this author mentions, is she said, look, I don't see what the big deal is. You know, if this was another country, I'd probably be in the Labor Party like Jacinda Ardern in uh, New Zealand. But I'm not in New Zealand, so, you know, this is how it works. 
Now notice, she said the Labour Party, like Jacinda Ardern, not like Jeremy Corbyn. Why? Well, Jeremy Corbyn got destroyed in the UK election by Boris Johnson here like a month, month and a half ago, something like that. And that was the party that AOC and Bernie Sanders and, and all of their acolytes were saying, go out and vote Labour, go, go out and vote Labour in the UK. And then the Labour Party got crushed. And then there was a de Democrat debate like a week later, and they didn't address it. And no one has still addressed that in a substantive manner. And the fact that she's saying, look, I'd be with Jacinda Ardern, I think she'd be saying Jeremy Corbyn if he'd won, but she knows that he didn't. Either way, this is the elephant in the room for the Democratic Party. And so they can talk about health care. They can talk about immigration. They can talk about Iran. And they will do that on Tuesday. That's what they'll talk about. That's fine. Those are all important issues. But this article is absolutely correct, not just in the fact that these are incompatible, but in that final analysis. No party is big enough for the both of them. That these are incompatible and they cannot coexist for much longer. They're not even really coexisting right now. And so until they address that, they can have all the conversations in the world about healthcare and wine caves and all this other stuff. But until they talk about that, it's kind of like, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? And there is an, I'll put a link to it in the description, but there is another piece about how the Democratic convention, whenever they're finally putting up their candidate and nominating who their candidate is going to be, could be a brokered convention. There could be enough candidates that have enough um, support from the, uh, oh my gosh, I don't know why I'm drawing blank. Anyway, from the primary runs that they could, all of them could be equally viable for the nomination. So either way, that could happen. And so this, this thing could spill over in a real substantive way whenever the Democrats go to nominate who their candidate is. And guess what? There's a lot of progressives that are rightfully pissed off about what happened with Bernie Sanders in 2016. And if it looks like they're going to end up nominating another kind of Clinton-type candidate and the progressive isn't going to get a seat at the table, especially if it's not like a the VP nod, you know, so if Biden gets the nomination and he doesn't have someone like, you know, Elizabeth Warren as his running mate, which I could see that happening, but either way... If there doesn't seem to be like there's a progressive seat at the table there, I don't know how they're going to respond. I think they'll be just as pissed at the establishment Democrats as they will be at Republicans if Trump wins. So this is the thing they have to address. They're not going to, you know, I hope they do on Tuesday. They're not going to. They haven't addressed the too far left stuff so far. I hope they do. But until they do, it's, it's a waste of time because I think that this guy's right. This party cannot exist with both of these visions operating at the same time. It's like running, trying to run two different computer programs at once that are trying to, it's two operating systems, they're trying to do two different things. You can't do it. And so until they address it, I don't know what we're doing here. There's another thing that's really interesting uh, that I, I want to just briefly touch on that I, I'll put the full article link here. It's from The Atlantic about this other issue that the Democratic Party is having. I think it's worth talking about because of how interesting it is. Uh, again, I, I'm not going to give any much commentary on it, but it's pretty fascinating. So this article is about this other swing voter, um, and they basically talk about how whenever people think about swing voters, they think about people in the middle, mostly whites, and how there's this other swing voter that's being ignored, and it's, they're saying like non-whites, minorities, but the author then goes on to basically just talk about how it's like the black uh, base of the Democratic Party and how this is this other swing voter. And I'm not, the article's super long. It's definitely worth reading because it's really interesting. But 
this one quote I think is worth talking about, or at least mentioning, because it again underscores this issue in the party right now that they need to address. So anyway, so when they talk about the other swing voter, he's saying basically black voters. Uh, anyway, quote, As individuals, the other swing voter is similar to the white swing voter. While the white swing voter assesses the Republican and Democrat and decides whom to vote for, the other swing voter assesses the Democrat and decides whether to vote. And so this is, this is another issue that the Democratic Party is having is that they're bleeding minority votes right now. They just are. I think that's probably one of the reasons reparations has been such a big thing that they've been talking about because we have the most historic unemployment of blacks and Latinos right now. And so it's like, how do you fight that? Well, let's talk about reparations and how racist America is. But they're bleeding minority voters. And so the fact that there is this still this assumption that they have the, the, the black vote, which I think is an absurd way to think about it generally, I think is something that's going to come back to bite them in the butt. It's a thing that they take for granted. They took for granted in 2016 and they lost. And so until they address that, you know, this guy's saying, and by the way, this was written by a black guy. And he says, look, there's this other swing voter and it's blacks who they're going to, they're going to vote Democrat, but it's, the question isn't Democrat or Republican for them. It's will I vote or not? And so there's this whole issue of electability of the issue of, do we nominate, are we, are the progressives going to win or are the moderates going to win? And one of the things baked into that is the appeal to black voters. That's one of the reasons Pete Buttigieg is a non-starter for the Democrats, because he has no appeal to the to black voters. He just doesn't. He's pulling at like 0% among black voters in every battleground state. So that's another thing that they the whole thing is a mess right now for them. But until they, I think that that's something they have to address is the fact they're taking this vote for granted. And I don't know how sustainable that is. But in t the main thing that they have to address is this issue between the progressives and the moderates and these incompatible visions. Until they address that, I don't know what we're doing here. Uh, but I'll put a link to that other swing voter piece because I think it's interesting. It might be something we bring up later. We'll see. But anyway, okay. So impeachment, we'll briefly talk about it. So evidently Nancy Pelosi is going to send the articles of impeachment over to the Senate this week. So she's kind of caving to Mitch McConnell. So he had come out and said, look, I've got the votes. I can, I'm not going to do what you want. I have the votes. We might just go ahead and do this thing, whether or not you send the articles over. It's a really fascinating kind of constitutional question mark territory that we're in. That's been interesting to watch it play out. But as soon as it was obvious that, you know, one, one thing I said that I think that this was a good strategy on her part, but I think she, you know, she kind of just let the joke go a little too long. You know, she let it sit on the shelf until it started to rot and it didn't so much become about what the, her, her objections were, but to what she was doing. You know, I think that initially she was able to frame it and say, Hey, I have these problems, but I think that she held on to them too long to where now it's like, well, why are you still doing this kind of thing? Uh, but anyway, so she's going to send it over there. Now, what I think she should have done was, you know, I've mentioned this before. I think going into the holidays, she said she should have spent, you know, two weeks, those two weeks saying, look, this isn't fair. We, we want we want witnesses. We want this. This is going to be a rigged thing in the Senate, yada, yada, yada. And whenever Mitch McConnell said no, I think what she should have done is, well, fine, you know, well, we're not going to hold on to this, you know, but here's what's going to happen. We're going to send it over there. They're not going to call witnesses. This is going to be a cover-up, yada, yada, yada. And this whole thing is rigged, and that's why you need to get out and vote in November. 
But she didn't do that. She held on to it. I don't know why she held on to it for so long. And part of it is that there were Democrats coming out and saying, I don't know why this is taking so long. And she kind of had to rein in her own side because there are people saying, let's just get this over with. So she held on to it too long. But either way, it's going over to the Senate. And one thing I think is interesting to at least contemplate is this strategy might not have been exclusively about the Republicans. I think it could have been a two-pronged thing. You know, think about this. Who are the people who, are, once this goes to the Senate, that have to actually weigh in on this thing, that now have to direct all their attention to impeachment? Senators. Okay, who, let's think about who's going to be on the debate stage on Tuesday for the Democrats. Senator Warren, Senator Sanders, Senator Klobuchar. The, the only people who, this, who aren't, who are basically leading in the Democrat Party right now in the primaries that won't be up there is Biden and Buttigieg. And a lot of people view Buttigieg also as kind of a moderate. He's not, but they view him as that. And so I think it's quite possible that Nancy Pelosi is like part of the holding on to it could be to make it to where Warren and Sanders, who represent that progressive wing, are tied up so that Buttigieg and Biden can basically lock this thing down for the moderate side. And because Pelosi's an establishment Democrat, she is. And so she knows what she's doing here. Again, I, I, I'll keep saying that. I think she does. And I, I think for us to think that this was just about hurting the Republicans, I think is, is probable for sure. But to say that she didn't fact or at least think about the fact that senators are going to have to be a part of this. And now we're going into the primaries, right? So if she sends it over, when will they start the procedures in the Senate? Well, here in the next couple weeks, when's the first primary? February 3rd in Iowa. And then we have Super Tuesday, I think is at the end of February, beginning of March, but there's a whole bunch more. And so either way, I think that it's possible at least that Pelosi is doing the math and thinking, okay, this will hinder the people who represent the progressive voice in our party. And so maybe it'll lock this thing up for Joe Biden. And by the way, I think that if the progressives think that, like, let's say that happens and uh, Warren and Sanders are tied up in the Senate, a procedure for however long, and it hurts them in the primaries, and Biden just is a shoe in. I, I don't know how progressives will handle that, but I, it'll be. I think it'll be pretty chaotic. So either way, that's just something to think about. But the articles are going over to the Senate next week. Uh, at least that's what Pelosi said. Is that they're going to nominate their people who are going to go over there and bring it over. So McConnell won, but I think that it, it will be interesting to see how this affects the primaries and how this affects Warren, Klobuchar, and Sanders particularly, since if they if they have to be in Washington for this thing, then it's going to hurt them on the campaign trail. It just will. And I think it'll be it'll basically give it to Biden if they're uh, busy for too long with the impeachment stuff. So anyway, okay, so that's where impeachment's at. Iran. Iran. Stuff happened with Iran. Again, I, I have it written here. This feels like it was like a million years ago. It was just last week we're talking about this. You know, the rockets flying over at the military base in Iraq and people freaking out. World War Three, all this other stuff. Feels like it was a million years ago. Like, seriously, 100,000 things have happened in the meantime. Uh, but we're going to cover the, the main fallout, kind of the was this a win, was this not. Anyway, so... If you recall, think about this again, it's a million years ago, but we blew up uh, Soleimani, Kasim Soleimani. He was the guy who has been basically running Iran's foreign ops 
for the better part of two decades, where he was engaging in these destabilizing missions. He was in charge of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Uh, this guy was a bad dude. He was behind the attack on our embassy in Iraq just before this happened, before we blew him up, and we blew him up in Iraq. He was at Baghdad's airport. And then it was like, what's going to happen? And then Iran launched a bunch, a bunch of missiles from Iran into Iraq at this military base where there were coalition troops, including U.S. soldiers, and people were freaking out. And I was like, let's wait and see what happened. And it looked like they had, we had been given warning. Like, it looked like this was maybe a thing where they just wanted to make it look like they were doing something and they're going to back off. And I had said, let's wait and see what Trump says, because this is last Sunday. I was talking about this. And then Monday, he gave this address to the country, but it seemed like it was going to be okay. Well, that ended up being correct. Fortunately, there were no U.S. casualties as a result of this. And in fact, Iran did use a back channel, it looks like, to warn Iraq. I mean, I think it was Netherlands maybe also confirmed because there are some coalition troops there from another European country. I'm pretty sure it was Netherlands. But they had received a warning as well. And so we knew about this. Turns out like six hours in advance, troops sought shelter. No one was hurt. And Iran got to, you know, kind of say, hey, hey, we did something. We came out and we, we fought the U.S., the imperialists, whatever. And, you know, Trump tweeted out that night, all is good. Looks like no casualties. I'll address the country tomorrow. And that's what he did on this past Monday. He came out. He gave a really short address. And he basically said just that. Um, he spoke from a teleprompter. He did a pretty good job. He didn't take any questions. But one of the ways he ended it he, is he said, quote, Finally, to the people and leaders of Iran, we want you to have a future and a great future, one that you deserve, one of prosperity at home and harmony with the nations of the world. The United States is ready to embrace peace with all who seek it. And so it looked like he backed off. He, had, he was like, we're good. We're going to impose some sanctions. He made some comments that pissed some people on the left off where he was like, yeah, the money they used for these rockets came from the Obama nuclear deal. And, you know, he's not wrong. That was one of the things that was built into the nuclear deal was they could use money on basically everything except for enriching uranium. And so that includes in like missile development and testing of long range missiles. Now, it turns out what they shot at this base was basically bottle rockets. But either way, you know, he's not wrong there, but whatever, people are going to get pissed about any attacks on Obama, so that's fine. Um, anyway, now one thing that was it was kind of funny was right after this happened, um, the House Democrats voted on this war powers resolution to limit Trump's military actions in Iran for 30 days. Now, you know, in my mind, it's like, I mean, this thing's like over, guys. Like, what are you talking about? You know, I, I imagine Trump sitting there going... Like, we're done, dude. Like, we're just going to do some sanctions. But either way, they got to do that and, you know, kind of grandstand a little bit. That's fine. One thing that was funny is that Ilhan Omar was talking about how, oh, sanctions are basically economic warfare. Now, Ilhan Omar supports BDS, which is Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions of Israel. So she's okay waging economic warfare on Israel, but not Iran. But whatever, you know, that's fine. Elhan Omar is going to do what Elhan Omar is going to do. But it looked like deterrence was basically established. That's one of the things a lot of conservatives have said. And I think they're probably basically right on that, that this is, it could have been really bad. And neither Iran nor the U.S. wanted to go to war. And that was one of the things I talked about last week was Iran is 
they have got a lot of turmoil going on in their country with these protests. They're arresting women who are dancing and putting videos on Instagram and are taking their hijabs off. They're hanging gay people. And so, you know, they're, they're arresting people, their own citizens who are protesting against them because they're a theocracy. They're an oppressive theocracy. And so to think that they want to go to war with the U.S. when there's a whole bunch of people in their own country who hate their government and are protesting daily against them is absolutely crazy. So no one wanted to go to war. You know, one thing that was an interesting, just tidbit, just factually accurate, is that there were more Americans killed in the week prior to us killing Soleimani due to Iran's actions than there were after us killing Soleimani. So <laughs> you would expect there to be more U.S. casualties afterwards than b before, but that's, you know, how much no one wanted to go to war as a result of this. Again, they warned us. But anyway, so the fact that, you know, we avoided World War III allowed us to kind of focus on the bigger thing, which I can't remember if I mentioned this last week or if it was just in stuff that I had written about, but it's how there was this plane crash that happened at the same time as all these rockets were flying, and how, you know, this is something that was like, this is obviously Iran's fault. Like, I mean, we're, we've got to address this. And it, it took him like three days, but Iran finally said, yeah, this is our fault. And so here's the victim count. I mean, this is pretty horrible. There were 82 Iranians, 63 Canadians, 11 Ukrainians, 10 Swedes, 4 Afghans, 3 Germans, and 3 British nationals. It's like 176 people, something like that. They were killed because... So what had happened was the U.S. has said, like, let's ground all flights. You know, don't know this airspace should be clear. Iran ignored that. So they had a, a plane taking off from Tehran from their own airport and had only been in the air for just like a couple minutes. And someone from the Iranian military saw it and they thought it was a missile. And so they fired a rocket at it, blew it up, killed everyone on board. And so... The only tra the casualties from this conflict really were Iranians and some Europeans and Canadians because of the incompetence of Iran's own government. Now, in the aftermath, there were people like uh, Democratic Representative Jackie Speer, Spire, and even Tulsi Gabbard, who came out and blamed this on the president, blamed this on the U.S., and said this was collateral damage. That's not how collateral damage works. That happens whenever, like, if we were targeting Soleimani, and let's say there was a family picnic happening nearby and the U.S. killed Soleimani and those those people, that would be collateral damage. But for the Iranians to blow up a commercial airliner on accident because of their own incompetence, that's not the U.S.'s fault. That's not our collateral damage. That's Iran being an incompetent regime. But anyway, so they're trying to blame this on the U.S. And that was in the news that, you know, it's kind of echoed like, oh, this is this is America's fault. But it had no legs, and there was protests in Iran as a result. It's going on right now. So here's from CNN about this. This will tell you where Iran actually is in terms of how the citizens view it. Because, again, of the people that were killed, 82 of them were Iranians. So the only Iranians that died in this conflict were from Iran's own government. So this is from CNN, quote, In a video posted on social media, protesters chanted for the supreme leader Ayatollah, Ayatollah al-Khamenei, to step down, and for those responsible for the downing of the plane to be prosecuted. Quote, death to the dictator, some chanted. The Islamic Republic of Iran deeply regrets this disastrous mistake. My thoughts and prayers go to all the mourning families, President Hassan Rouhani said. That's the president of Iran. Rouhani apologized to the Ukrainian people, because it was a Ukrainian flight, and promised to hold those responsible accountable 
according to the readout of the conversation. Now, this is the part that's interesting. So we've got to square the circle of blaming this on the U.S. government with this next part. So this is from the readout from the Iranian government. Quote, the head of the Islamic Republic of Iran fully acknowledges that the tragedy was due to the erroneous actions of the military of this state. So they're saying this was our fault. We take all the responsibility for it. So for people like you know, Tulsi Gabbard, I don't know where she's, why she's doing that. And for others to say that this was the U.S.'s fault is absolutely absurd. This is their own incompetence that brought this tragedy about. And from the, this is from the BBC today. Because uh, they're, they're, Iranian citizens are protesting this. They're pissed. They were already pissed at their government for arresting women who were posting videos on Instagram of dancing. So the, Iran just blew up their own airline. That's why they're shouting death to the Ayatollah and calling for the president to step down and everyone to step down. I mean, they're furious. So this is what's going on there right now. This is from the BBC. Quote, riot police members of the elite Revolutionary Guard, that's the one who Soleimani was in charge of, on motorbikes and plainclothes security officials were out in force. In one apparently symbolic act of rejecting state propaganda, video showed students taking care to not walk over U.S. and Israeli flags painted on the ground at Shahadi Beshti University in Tehran. In some social media clips, protesters can be heard chanting anti-government slogans, including, They are lying that our enemy is America. Our enemy is right here. Many protesters are women. Social media footage showed clapping and chanting protesters in Tehran's Azadi Square. BBC Persian says there has been a crackdown there by security forces with tear gas fired. Those who decide to continue demonstrating will be mindful of the violence with which the security forces have dealt with protest movements in the past, the BBC's Arab Affairs editor Sebastian Usher says. So, no one is buying this idea that this plane crash, or being shot down, was the U.S.'s fault. It wasn't. Iran's own citizens are like, this is crap. Like, I mean, I don't know how much longer they're going to be able to tolerate their government because they've been protesting them so hard. Um, but they're blame they they're not buying that this is the U.S.'s fault, and they're saying I mean that's what they said. America is not our enemy; the enemy is right here. And there's women out there protesting, and so they're firing tear gas at them. The government is, but this thing is huge, and it's been going on for several days. So we'll see how long it continues. Again, protests were already happening there, but the the thing is, is right now. The, the world is watching. I mean, this is, there again, there were UK uh, citizens killed. In fact, Iran actually detained UK's ambassador there for a while because he went to what's a, quote, illegal vigil being held to, you know, kind of mourn the UK citizens that were killed. So there are three UK citizens that were killed in this plane crash. They arrested the UK's ambassador temporarily. So UK is pissed about that. And again, Boris Johnson's in charge over there, and so he's he's a he's no friend of Iran. But anyway, and there were people who were saying like, "Oh, well, this was gonna, you know, how is Canada gonna respond?" I mean, sixty three Canadians, I think it was sixty two. Yeah, sixty sixty three Canadians that were killed, and Justin Trudeau came out and he was like, "He's mad," you know. And Justin Trudeau, that guy is pretty far to the left. I mean, really far to the left. And so but there are people saying now, like, this is actually probably going to give Trudeau and Trump something to be united on for once, whereas they've not been friends in the past. And so I think that this is uniting the world right now against Iran. 
and the, how they treat these protesters, people are actually paying attention now. And so this is what Trump tweeted out uh, in, in Farsi, evidently. He's definitely fluent in Farsi, right? No, I'm kidding. But he did tweet this out in Farsi. Quote, To the brave, long-suffering people of Iran, I've stood with you since the beginning of my presidency. Really? Anyway. And my administration will continue to stand with you. We are following your protests closely and are inspired by your courage. End quote. That's a good tweet. I wish he would do that with Hong Kong, honestly. The fact that the U.S. has been so silent on what's been going on in Hong Kong is astounding to me and really disappointing, to be honest. I wish he'd do that for Hong Kong, but I'm glad he's doing it with the protesters in Iran. And then this morning he tweeted out, quote, to the leaders of Iran, this part's in all caps, do not kill your protesters. Thousands have already been killed or imprisoned by you, and the world is watching. More importantly, the U.S. is watching. Turn your internet back on and let reporters roam free. Stop the killing of your great Iranian people. And so he's saying, look, we're paying attention. Canada is pissed. The Ukraine is pissed. The UK is pissed. Like this plane crash has united people even more so than ever against Iran. And so I think we're going to have no problem getting these sanctions through. So they are in no position to do anything other than just keep their head down, to be honest. And to his credit, by the way, Brian Stelter... Uh, he did a thing where he was talking about that last tweet that Trump sent out this morning where he was like, look, he's right. They need to turn their internet back on and they need to let the reporters roam free so we can know what's happening there. You know, credit where credit's due. Now, that was the only credit CNN was willing to give to uh, the administration for how they've handled this and what's been going on. But, you know, fair is fair. Good for Brian Stelter for doing that. Now, the other part of it, the part where, of course, there has to be criticism. You know, I was watching this piece on uh, Aaron Burnett was talking to this guest. I think this is on maybe Thursday or Friday. And so the official story that the U.S. put out was like, yeah, it looks like Iran wasn't trying to kill um, any soldiers. Now, later they were like, oh, we don't want to give the game away too much. And so, well, we had this early warning detection system. Really, the early warning detection system was the back channel the Iranians established to say, hey, we're going to shoot some bottle rockets over there, get everyone down so we don't have to go to war. Um, but anyway, but they were saying, look, Iran wasn't trying to kill people here. They were just trying to send a message. And then there was this general who said, look, I don't have all the information, but it seems to me that they were probably trying to kill people. But that's just my personal opinion, you know, take it with a grain of salt. And Aaron Burnett has this Democrat guest on and she's like, well, who do you think is right? This general or literally everyone else? You know, he said he hasn't seen all the information and that it's just his opinion and he, you know, he doesn't really know. But do you think he might be right that Iran really was trying to kill people? Like, don't you think so? And so it was crazy. You know, she and she was like, well, he tweeted out that, that we wouldn't stand for any attacks on U.S. personnel. And then they're allowing this. It was like, do you guys want us to go to war with Iran? What are you doing, Aaron Burnett? So that was absurd. And then you know, the focus is now going back to, because we can't blame, you know, there's no legs on blaming the U.S. for the plane crash. We're going to go back to saying, well, there was no real good evidence of us to kill Soleimani in the first place, and we're less safe now as a result. You know, there was a piece on CNN today about how the Trump administration isn't actually giving any evidence that there was future attacks on embassies. You know, I guess they had said, well, there was four embassy attacks that were imminent, and now, and CNN's like, well, they're not giving us any evidence. It's like, well, what, is there not evidence enough that, you know, Soleimani orchestrated the attack on our embassy in Iraq right before we blew him up? Like, really, guys? Like, come on. 
So, yeah, honestly, all that to me, you know, that goes back to that. I've brought this up multiple times before, but where Sam Harris talks about criticism and how even though that guy hates Trump, he's like, you have to be factual in your criticism because if you just say things that are so detached from reality, it removes your legitimate ability to, to give criticisms, especially where they're warranted. And so this type of stuff where it's like, why are you defending Iran? Why are you saying things to just picket this? Like, this is a win. We got to take out this dude. This is a bad dude. He's responsible for lots of deaths, not just of U.S. of U.S. citizens and our soldiers. Again, this is, he's been responsible for destabilizing operations all throughout the region because Iran wants to take this Shiite crescent. So destabilizing things in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Bahrain, like this dude, there, he is, was really bad guy. So just take the W, guys. Take the W. Like Trump, for for all intents and purposes, this is not a guy who seems like he's, you know, exuding humility at any given time. But he was willing to say, yeah, this is fine. You know, Iran's Ayatollah said this is like a slap. Or no, there I told their foreign minister was like, this is a slap in the face. To, a, to the U.S., you know, talking about launching the rockets over. And he just took it. He's like, all right, let's take the W. Throw some sanctions on there. Call it a day. And the fact that there are so many people that still want to spin this is like all the U.S., you know, imperialism or, you know, oh, well, why do, was this really a good idea to kill Soleimani? You know, there's a lot of people in a lot of countries that aren't the U.S. that are that benefit as a result of this. So it's not just us. It's people all in that region that are safer now as a result. And, that, and we are, we're safer too. But that whole region is safer and has the potential for more future stability as a result. So the fact that there are so many people you know, wanting to nitpick at this still is just astounding to me. But anyway, we'll see how that, you know, obviously they're going to talk about that and debate on Tuesday. And so, you know, I want to know how much they're going to cover it. You know, they'll try and spin this as a loss and how the, we're going to go to war with Iran or whatever. But I just there's no legs to it, and I don't see how the U.S. people are going to buy into that. But uh, either way, we'll see. You know, I'll kind of close it here. On Monday, after the president gave his, his talk, or gave his press conference or whatever, you know, where I was kind of, I was waiting for it to start. It was, like, late by 30 minutes or something like that. It's like, what's happening here? You know, kind of nervous, and then comes out, and it seems like everything's fine. And I hopped on Huffington Post, you know, I think within an hour or so to see, like, how are they covering it? And, like, the main marquee news thing they're talking about was Prince Harry and Meghan Markle stepping down as royals or whatever it is that they they do. I don't know anything about royal family. I don't care at all. Never have. I think it's idiotic. But anyway, I'm like, okay, well, now that World War Three has been averted, I guess we're back to business as usual. So I think that there's going to be these kind of residual criticisms of, well, how safe was this and yada, yada, yada. But... This is going to fizzle, and the impeachment's going to go through the Senate, and that's going to fizzle, and that's just going to leave the issues. That's going to leave the Democratic primaries and the upcoming election in full view. And so whenever it be becomes that, and it's about policies, I, I just I don't see how this is going to go well for the Democrats, especially if they don't address that main rift of the incompatible visions going on. So hopefully they do on Tuesday, but... We'll see. Probably not. Either way, I'm going to be live tweeting it out. Um, so you should follow me on Twitter. That's at my mundane mind. You should follow me anyway. But uh, and if you like more of this stuff, um, the, this type of content, this type of commentary, 
please like, share, subscribe uh, on YouTube, especially. That's uh, Return to Reason. All my stuff is on Spotify, so you can download my podcast there and listen later. And again, if you if you feel like I misrepresented something, if you feel like I was unfair in any way or missed the point or was inaccurate, please let me know in the comments. I'd love to hear your opinions. I want to hear what you have to say, really, truly. Uh, I want you know I want to be as honest as I can and do my best, and that includes responding to criticism. So, if there's anything you think, just let me know. Shoot me a message, whatever. Uh, either way, next Sunday I'll go through kind of the continued fallout from this, see where the Senate's at with impeachment. There's some other interesting stuff. I've been trying to get some stuff in South America. I haven't quite gotten there, but I think there's some elections coming up there that I think are worth talking about. So I don't know. I need to check and see where they're at. I probably should have done that before even mentioning it. But either way, we'll talk about the fallout from the debate and where impeachment's at and, you know, again, what the orange man did next to ruin the country, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, thanks for watching. And I will, oh, also next Sunday, hopefully I'll be this Go Chiefs, right, uh, against Tennessee. So that'll be the other big thing from Sunday. That'll probably be the biggest thing. How that game goes, I'll care more about that than anything else that happens in the next week, probably. Anyway, that's it. I will see you guys next week. Take care. Have a good one.